You asked, we answered. Many of you have asked that each show on the Man of God Network be transitioned to its own RSS feed on iTunes or the podcast app that you use. We've heard your request. Each show on the Man of God Network is now available on its own unique RSS feed. This makes it easier to search for previous episodes, yet all of our shows are still connected on one channel. You can find this by searching the Man of God by CBT Seminary channel on iTunes. If you've enjoyed our content, please consider subscribing to each show on the Man of God Network channel as we move content over. And thanks for listening to the Man of God Network brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. You are listening to Preaching and Teaching on the Man of God Network of Podcasts. This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. So, um... Uh, course texts, I've got a page three in the syllabus. Uh, we've got a number there from the early church, Augustine's Confessions, uh, Basil of Caesarea on the Holy Spirit. Oh, we'll look at these tomorrow. Gregory Nyssa's Life of Macrina. Um, you may never have heard of Gregory Nyssa or Macrina. Macrina was uh, his sister, and Gregory Nyssa was the brother of Basil of Caesarea, and Macrina was instrumental in the conversion of Basil. Basil is very important because he's, he hammers out the doctrine of the Trinity during that long battle over the who is, who is the Holy Spirit and who is the Lord Jesus in relation to God the Father in the fourth century. And uh, Macrina is a remarkable figure. And what we're going to do, look, do with um, the text on Macrina is think about um, a form of spirituality that comes into the fourth, in the fourth century and dominates the next thousand years, which is what we call monastic spirituality. And there's a number of texts I could use. This is one of the most attractive in some ways. Uh, there will be clearly areas where I disagree with it, but I, wa I, want to, to, I want to work through it to kind of bring home uh, at the very beginning of the monastic movement. What, what were these people thinking they were doing and why were they doing it? Um, <clears throat> and then uh, there's some secondary sources. Uh, oh, uh, Jonathan Edwards' Religious Affections, which we'll look at next week. And then some secondary sources, uh, one by Kelly Capek and Randall Gleason called The Devoted Life and then one by Robert Wilkin called The Spirit of Early Christian Thought. Those of you who are doing this for credit, there's a book review, a book review of Capek and Gleason, which looks at Puritan spirituality, looks at different Puritan authors and uh, their writings. And then uh, the third post-course assignment is, the, is, a, is a, I think, an interesting one. Uh, in our circles, there are two key texts that shape us. One is the Scriptures. The other one is what we sing. We, we don't have a book in our circles like, uh, say, the Ancan. When I went to Wycliffe College, we had morning and evening prayer based on the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, which went back to the common prayer book of Thomas Cramner that was passed in, by the Church of England in 1552. We don't have anything like that. We've got uh, two texts. Well, one is uh, the Scriptures. The other is more subtle because my suspicion is that when we sing, we're not always thinking about exactly what we're saying. 
And therefore, those, those words can go into our minds, and you sing those hymns over and over and over again, and they shape us. So um, you can, I'm sure you all know how easy it is that if I were to ask you, okay, recite for me in prose, as it were, Amazing Grace. And I imagine probably a number of you will get stuck. But if you start to sing it, how quickly it comes. It just falls into place. And there's something about that, that, that medium of singing that kind of enables your memory to, 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 to be jogged. And so what I'd like you to do, uh, those of you who are doing this for credit, the final assignment is based on uh, an analyzing a hymn. And we're going to do this one. We'll do this when we get to uh, Charles Wesley. We'll actually go through uh, one, of his, one or two of his hymns, and I'll kind of give you a model of how you work through a, work through a hymn. And... Um, <clears throat> One of the things I lament is, and I, I think I, I see the Trinity hymnal there, one of the things I lament about uh, uh, so much of contemporary evangelicalism is the, the loss of the hymnal. And I, it's not simply because I love books, but uh, because if you, if you have hymnals, then you can take one home, and you can read it, and you can use it as a vehicle of spiritual devotion. If everything is always on the overhead, uh, how are you going to memorize those texts? I ain't even going to remember them from week to week. Uh, you'll have to go online, find it, print out a copy. And I really think we've lost something. I mean, maybe we've gained something uh, by the overhead, but I think we've lost something uh, by the loss of the physical book, uh, which we call the hymnal. So tonight, um, what remains in this first hour is I'm going to be doing an introduction to uh, the spirituality of the early church. Then I'm going to look at two types of spiritual writings. Uh, one is a thing called the Letter to Diognetus. It's an apologetic writing, and you'll see how apologetics kind of meshes with spirituality. And then the second writing, uh, we don't know the author of that, by the way. It's not Diognetus. It's the letter to Diognetus, not of Diognetus. And then the second document we're going to look at is uh, a letter written by Cyprian, North African bishop, around the year two. 44 that relates to his conversion. And um, there'll be a number of things in there that will resonate with you. There is, there is from uh, very early on in the North African Christian experience, a deep commitment to the sovereignty of God. It comes to flower with Augustine in his confessions. But you see it already there in Cyprian. But there's other, another number of other little things going on there too that we'll see. And uh, so that'll be tonight. Tomorrow, um, is mostly the patristic period. We're going to look at Basil of Caesarea on the Holy Spirit, which is a theological treatise. But you'll notice that by what I'm doing in the course, I'm not just simply picking books that you normally think, oh, spirituality, okay, books on prayer, uh, books on um, maybe uh, the Lord's Supper, things like that. I'm also looking at the way spirituality informs the way we do theology and how sometimes uh, when an author is doing theology and arguing for the deity of the Holy Spirit in this book. Their spirituality comes through it again and again and again. Uh, then we'll look at Gregory Nyssa's life of Macrina. Augustine, we're going to spend a lot of time on Augustine comparatively tomorrow, probably three lectures. And I don't apologize for that. Um, Augustine is enormously important. Uh, everybody in this room is an Augustinian. Uh, even if you've never read him, you're all Augustinians. Um, he shapes the entire Middle Ages. Um, <clears throat> and the Reformation. Wherever, uh, wherever Augustine was read, um, 
seriously and pondered, there was usually revival and renewal. If you look at the, in the, 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 um, the medieval period, uh, Anselm, Bernard of Clairvaux, Thomas Bradwardine, Luther and Calvin, um, the Puritans, uh, John Owen, when John Owen in his book on the Holy Spirit wants to give an example of how does the Holy Spirit convert people, he went to Augustine's Confessions. And he went through large parts of them. Uh, and then, <coughs> excuse me, we're going to spend two very quick hours on the medieval period. So that's a thousand years in two hours, so you can see I'm running through it. As, a, as an evangelical historian, I'm not afraid to admit, uh, the medieval period is the most difficult period, I think, for me, probably for a lot of us. Um, I find myself wrestling with a lot that's going on there. And uh, there are a number of remarkable figures, and we're going to look at one Anselm. And we're going to look at a meditation he wrote on human redemption. Really, it's on the cross, on penal substitutionary atonement. And it's uh, kind of a, a, a summary of a more famous book, Why God Became Man, uh, which he wrote uh, to defend the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. Next week, uh, we're going to look at the Reformation, look at Thomas Cramner, Book of Common Prayer. And then uh, Puritanism, really, again, you can see I'm running through this. In two hours, I'm going to look at Puritan piety uh, overall, and then Oliver Cromwell as a quintessential Puritan. You might think, that's a weird choice. Um, the more I read Cromwell, the more remarkable he was. Uh, he was flawed like we are, but I would to God that we had politicians like Oliver Cromwell. Uh, just a remarkable man who was trying to translate into the realm of politics uh, his own walk with God. And then we'll spend uh, most of the rest of the time on the 18th and 19th century. We'll look at Jonathan Edwards, uh, Charles Wesley, and Griffiths, died at the age of 29, wrote about 30 hymns, uh, just a really a remarkable uh, Christian woman, and was Welsh, never wrote any of them in English. Uh, and then I want to look at Samuel Pierce. He was in that room in 1792, part of the founding of the Baptist Missionary Society, and we'll end with Spurgeon. And uh, Spurgeon's always a great place to end, and something of the spirituality of Charles Spurgeon. So it's really a lot of, uh, there's a lot there I need to go through. And so I'm kind of touching down at various points, what I think are key turning points, and kind of plumbing down deeply, and coming back up and skimming and going down again. Okay, <clears throat> patristic spirituality. Uh, there will be time for questions at the end. Uh, we're going to leave them to the end. So if you've got them and you think you can't remember them, write them down. Um, and we're doing that for the tape purposes of taping. And when we do the questions, uh, please make sure you get, have the mic to speak into so that those who are watching this or will watch it later at some point will know what the question is. They won't simply hear my answer, but they'll also hear the question. So, patristic spirituality. And um, uh, the word patristic uh, means fathers. And... Um, So it's, it's simply the word for church fathers. And you can imagine that given, 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 given the word father, I'm not going to get into the details of this, uh, that's been a controversy in the last probably 20, 20, 25 years. A lot of patristic scholars now don't call themselves patristic scholars. They're scholars of early Christianity um, or ancient Christianity. And they don't want to use the word patristic because of its gender. And uh, <clears throat> the, the problem, and some people have said, well, why don't, why don't we have matristics? 
Right? You got the word. Uh, the word does exist, metristics. Well, the problem is, because of the nature of uh, education, uh, less than 2% of women in the Roman Empire, that's 60 to 70 million people, could read and write. And we have no texts virtually from women, uh, early Christian women. We, we, uh, we have Perpetua. We have a small prison diary from her. I'll mention her briefly. Um, Monica, we never hear her voice except through Augustine. Uh, Tertullian talks a lot about women uh, in his writings, but we never hear their voices. We only hear them through Tertullian. And so matristics, well, you know, I, I think it's, you know, some people have adopted that. It's, it's kind of a, because of the, the controversy of gender in our day. All of the writers in the early church are men, and that's just the way it is. Um, so I'm, I'm going to use the word patristic, patristic spirituality. And uh, the number of things uh, that we, uh, before I even begin to lay out its characteristics, uh, the first thing that needs to be <coughs> um, determined is uh, the length of time of this period. So when does it begin? When does it end? Well, the beginning is easy. That, that's an easy question. It's roughly 100 AD. That's when it begins. Uh, it begins at the end of the apostolic period. Uh, so the New Testament is written in that first century uh, by common tradition, and I think it's a good tradition. The Apostle John uh, is uh, alive in the 90s and dies and is buried in Ephesus. I, it's a fairly good tradition. Um, and uh, you can date all of John's writings before AD 70. There was a uh, a scholar named John Robinson. It was actually quite interesting because he was a very liberal scholar. He was a bishop in England. And but he wrote a book near the end of his life called Redating the New Testament. He argued every book in the New Testament was written before A.D. 70. And uh, a lot of scholars haven't agreed with him. Most books are written before A.D. 70. Um, uh, the fall of Jerusalem is critical in all of the books of the New Testament except possibly Revelation. Uh, the fall of Jerusalem is always a future event. None of the gospel writers, when our Lord predicts the fall of Jerusalem, said it turned out as he predicted, which means that those writings have to have come before 70 AD, because if it ha they were after, they clearly would have said, as our Lord predicted, so the temple was destroyed. Not one stone was left on top of one stone. But they all, they, none of them say that, which means that it was done before the, the AD 70. Uh, which means that the Gospels uh, were written very early, uh, which is very important for authenticity and so on. Uh, but most people believe that Revelation and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were written later, much later, especially Revelation. And uh, whether or not you adopt that, normally the apostolic generation is that generation that by the AD 90, any of the men and women who would have heard our Lord whose ministry would have been in the late 20s, early 30s, uh, would have been dead. And so you have that passing of that generation. And so it's easy, fairly easy to date the beginning of the patristic period. It comes after the apostolic era, about 100. It's not clear where it ends. Uh, when I was uh, studying this years ago, initially, uh, I was always taught it kind of ended around the year 476. That's the fall of the Roman Empire in the West. Um, if you want to kind of round it out, 
uh, 500. Uh, I don't buy that anymore. Um, uh, it, is a, it is a common argument. Uh, the reason I don't buy that is that although the Roman Empire fell in the West, it continued in the East, and uh, church leaders went on in many respects as they had done before. Certain parts of the Roman Empire were now under the rule of barbarians, as the Romans called them. Uh, Germanic peoples, Franks, Burgundians, Lombards, uh, Vandals, Visigoths, Ostrogoths, on and on and on. And, um, but in the Eastern Roman Empire, the Roman Empire still continued. In fact, that empire continued for another thousand years. You know, we, we talk about long-lived empires. Well, the Roman Empire was around for, for uh, uh, close to uh, 2,000 years from its beginning. And uh, puts other empires in, in, of course, in the length of eternity. It's nothing, but puts other empires in this world in, uh, in pale into an insignificance. Um, the real break comes with the rise of Islam. And I would, I would really date um, the, the patristic period uh, to around 700 AD. It's when Islam comes out of the Saudi Peninsula and takes out the entire North African church and takes out, uh, apart from Egypt, uh, it is a shock to realize that the, one of the strongest areas of Christianity in the ancient world was North Africa. And after Islam gets done with it, uh, it's gone. It's completely gone. Uh, the church in, in uh, Egypt remains, uh, the Coptic church, which is still there today. Uh, the church in the Middle East is deeply uh, attenuated after the rise of Islam. And um, then in recent days with the, 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 the reinvigoration of Islam, it's uh, it's devastating what they have done to, to uh, professing Christians in the Middle East. So at 700 AD, uh, before the rise of Islam, the patristic world was based on an east-west axis. East, uh, Palestine, Israel, and the gospel came from there. It came along uh, the shores of the Mediterranean. The Romans owned all of the northern shore and all of the southern shore. When we look at a map, what we see, we see the Mediterranean divides two worlds, Europe with its Christian past, and North Africa, which we tend to think of, well, Muslim. It's not the way the Romans saw it. The Romans didn't call that sea the Mediterranean. <clears throat> the word Mediterranean means that which lies between lands. They called it Mare Nostrum, our sea. Uh, they owned the whole thing. And, uh, but after the rise of Islam, Everything has changed. After the rise of Islam, uh, the whole of the North African, the whole of the southern shore of that world is gone. And Christianity is bottled up into Europe. And it's not until the, the rise of uh, the various nation states like Spain and Portugal with uh, monies to, to fund explorers uh, that uh, the Europeans are able to break out of that stranglehold. So I, I think the period ends around 700. And so normally when I teach this period, I, I take it to 700. And I, that means I have to include Islam as part of the thinking. I'm not going to talk about Islam in our context. But Islam is very important. Uh, we, we tend, we, our forebears uh, knew the threat of Islam, which only has recently come back to us. Um, when Martin Luther was dying in 1546, the Muslims were besieging Vienna. Vienna's right in the heart of Europe. And it's probably only 
200 miles from where Luther lived. And he was positive that the false prophet of Islam was going to link up with the Antichrist in Rome to destroy the church in Europe. It didn't work out that way in his lifetime. But, uh, and we've, we've forgotten all that. Um, and we've forgotten how strong Islam is, uh, was historically. B.B. Uh, Warfield, the great Presbyterian theologian who died in 1921, in 1910, uh, as, he was looking at, as he was looking at Islam, he said, Islam is a weak old man. It's completely done. We have nothing to worry about in Islam. He says, the gospel is going to go forth into Muslim countries, and Islam's finished. Uh, it didn't work. It hasn't worked out that way. Not at all. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.